Open your Bibles with me this morning, if you would. Acts chapter 4 and 5. Continuing in our series, what I learned from a personality in Scripture. Today we're going to learn something from a liar. Hard to believe. There are things you can learn from people who are liars and can't be trusted. While you're turning to that passage, Tam and I are going to be out of town this following week and Dave's going to fill in for me. And I do appreciate Dave Scott. He fills in for me, does a great job. Last week, I called him Friday night, told him I'd tested, or two weeks ago, I'd called, and te- called him to preach for me. And he did it without any problem at all. He was out of town, and he blew back in and took care of things. And I appreciate his efforts. So, so Dave, thank you. Acts chapter 4 and 5. What I learned from a liar. As always, we pray. The news is a terrifying thing anymore, isn't it? It's almost every day. Another tragedy, another crisis at home and abroad. I'll give you a few moments to pray silently. I'll close and we'll look at this passage together. Would you join me, please? Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your presence this morning. We gather and worship for many reasons. You are worthy of worship, so we gather. We gather in the name of Jesus to send up songs of praise to you, to proclaim our faith in you, our love for you, our devotion to the life you've given us. We pray, Father, this morning for this nation. We ask for mercy and forgiveness for our sin. We ask, Father, that you would especially be with the parents of those children, the loved ones of those that have been murdered just recently. Comfort them, Father. Help us as a people to make hard choices. And just as importantly, Father, help us to understand that there is something about us that is broken. We're not just sinners. We are that. But there's something about the culture that we've developed that is producing murderers every day. Help us to discern what that is. Give us a willingness to make changes. Help us to repent of the ways that we have adopted that are producing people who have no value for life. Forgive us, Father. We pray this morning for those in Ukraine. or those others in war-torn places. Lord, help us. We pray that you would work a work of peace in those cultures, that you would calm the aggressors, that you would raise up leaders who could unite people to stand together and say no more. In every turn, Father, we see a world that is falling apart. And we are scared. We are afraid of what the future holds. We are afraid of the obvious problems. We are afraid of what might be. And there are no easy answers. We pray, Lord, that you would be with those who have power. Give them wisdom. 
and discernment and courage and boldness. Give them self-restraint. We pray that people in power, with those in front of microphones, with those that are, have a hearing, it would give them discernment and restraint. Not to be smart-alecky and insulting, but to be gracious, to give insight and guidance to us. Lord, we need your help. As always, we pray that you'd be with those first responders, with their families, with our soldiers and their loved ones. Give them comfort and loss. Protect them wherever they serve. Thank you, Father, for this life. We have so much. We recognize that what is good is gift from you. And we thank you for that. Father, teach us from your word even now. There are stories in scripture that confound us, confuse us, and sometimes enlighten us. Help us to hear with open hearts and minds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So one of the worst things in my mind that you can say about somebody is they're a liar. We say it about salesmen sometimes, about politicians sometimes, about other people. So let me ask you this, and this isn't a trick question. How many times does a person have to lie to you before you think they are a liar? Because when you think about it, those that lie to us do it repeatedly. And yet only some are liars in our mind. We trust people even though we know we can't trust them. So we have this issue with truth and with lies and things like that. Strangely enough, interestingly enough, the scripture has a lot to say about lying and telling the truth and being truth tellers. Today we're going to look at a story where a man and his wife told a simple lie and they died. Our story is a pretty simple story. This is in the early church after Pentecost. Peter and his friends were in Jerusalem and they were preaching. And one day they were preaching and were confronted by a man that had been born lame. And he had never walked before in his life. His legs just didn't work. No one knew much about medicine in those days, so we don't know much. But in a sermon they were preaching and he came up. And in faith he asked, heal me. And Peter did. And it was that simple. Stand. And he did. And for some reason, God used that moment in time to heal this man. And it caused all sorts of stir because this man was well into his 40s. Everybody knew he was crippled. Wasn't a show. You know, you always can't trust miracles. But they had learned that Peter was different. This man was healed. He had been crippled all his life. They all knew the story. And he walked. And he wouldn't shut up either. He told everybody what was going on. The religious leaders that didn't like Peter and the others, they were anti-Christian at the time. They didn't know what to do, so they took him and they worked him over a little bit and said, listen, you've got to stop this stuff about Jesus. We don't want you to do this anymore. Peter said, no, we have to tell the truth. They didn't know what else to do. They knew that Peter and his friends were popular, so they couldn't kill them. And they couldn't even beat him up, so they were in a spot. So they just said, get out of town. They weren't obedient. 
As a result of that and some other things, the church in Jerusalem exploded, literally exploded. Thousands of people getting saved, big crowds following this man Jesus that had been just not too long before, had been crucified as a traitor, resurrected from the dead, so the story went. And they were following Jesus and they were in the church and the church was doing this unusual thing. They decided that they would have all things common. They started a commune. Now, they didn't just live together and share spouses. You know, that's what we typically think of communes. But in those days, they just lived where they lived. But they got together and everybody sold their possessions. And they gave everything that they sold, all the money that they received from selling things. And they gave it to the church. And then the elders of the church distributed equally so that everybody... Everybody had what they needed. Now, this was an unusual thing for all sorts of reasons. Number one, most of the time, we don't want to give away our stuff for all sorts of really important things because, you know, what would we do without our stuff? But more than that, we work hard for our possessions and our monies, and it's hard to give up. But so powerfully moving was the Spirit of God that they felt this unction, that's a preacher word, but this spiritual leading to give up all things. And so people would sell their homes and sometimes sell their second home. There were some wealthy people in the church. And they would sell them some spare animals or whatever. And they would bring to the altar in a worship service. And it was understood that you would give everything. So if you sold a, a parcel of property for $1,000 or whatever, you would bring it and give $1,000. No questions asked. And that way God took care of everybody. Now this was huge because in that culture there were the haves, a small number, and then the have-nots. And the have-nots really were have-nots. They literally lived day to day. And you've learned that over the years that in ancient cultures starvation was the norm. One meal a day was a good day. But in that church in Jerusalem, for a time, everybody had what they needed. Ananias and Sapphira were part of this. We don't know anything about them. They owned land, so they were wealthy people. Only the wealthy owned land in those days. Most people just lived and rented and survived. Ananias and Sapphira were part of this. As far as we know, they were believers in Jesus. They had been saved. They had been baptized, doing all the things right. And they sold his property, probably with the full intention of giving everything. And yet... At home, they were sitting there, and I imagine this conversation between Ananias and Sapphira. And they looked at this bundle of money that they had for the property. It was a lot of money. And they said, you know, we don't have to give it all. The other said, well, I don't know. That was the idea, wasn't it? Well, yeah, but give it all. We don't have to go crazy. We don't want to be fanatics or anything. We're just going to give three-fourths. We don't know the number, but let's just say they decided they were going to give three-fourths of the money. And they didn't make an announcement. They just came up, and Ananias first came to the church, and he gave this pot of money, which was a lot of money as far as we know. And Peter said, no, wait. Is this what you got for the property? Yes. Lied through his teeth to the preacher, right in front of God and everybody. And he died. Several hours later, Sapphira, the wife, not knowing about the story and what had happened to her husband, came into the church. And Peter said, Sapphira, come here. Yeah? That gift that you gave, that was the full price of the land, right? Yeah? 
And he said, the people who carried your husband's body out are here for you. And she died. Struck by the Spirit of God. The deacons came and carried him out. That was what deacons did back in those days. Interestingly enough, the Bible has this funny verse. And everybody was afraid after that. Kind of funny when you think about it. So what we're having here is a story about a liar. Two people, just minding their own business, but they made this mistake of lying, not only to the church, but to God himself. So on screen, we're going to have this discussion with these two people. Let's imagine that Ananias and Sapphira were here, and they were going to tell about their story. What might they say? And they would say something like this, and they'd say it differently, but this is how preachers talk. When God's people follow his lead... Their actions can bring about a dramatic change in this life. Remember, Ananias and Sapphira did this because they had gotten caught up in the moment and the Spirit of God was working in their lives and they saw what God was doing and they wanted to be a part of that. And for the first time in their lives, everybody there had what they needed. They had never seen that before and they wanted to be a part of it. And so they observed this idea of how God could make things happen. So if you would follow along with me, in Acts chapter 4, verses 33 through 35. And with great power, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sale and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Remember, most people were starving. Most people literally had the shirt on their back. And that's it. They rented a hole in the wall. They just lived. In those cultures, when you worked for a living, and you weren't one of those wealthy people that worked for a living, but you were one of those hired laborers, you would work a day, typically 12 to 14 hours, and you would get paid at the end of the day because you didn't have enough money to live several days in a row. And this is why the Old Testament teaches that you must pay your laborers at the end of the day and you must not withhold that labor, that pay, because if you didn't pay them that night, more than likely their family didn't eat that night. And if someone owed you something, you could take their cloak, their shirt, or their coat, but you couldn't keep it overnight because they needed it because that's all they had to cover up with in the cool of the desert night. So these people were starving and Ananias and Sapphira and others, they had seen this and they probably didn't care. You know how we are. We see those people that have needs and we say that's sad, somebody ought to do something. But we don't. You develop kind of a thick skin towards the needs of people. So powerful was the moving of God though in that church at that time that for some reason all of a sudden their eyes were opened. And they began to see, those people need help. It wasn't that they were lazy or stupid or anything else. They were just victims of a culture that was pretty cruel. Read your history books, folk. History is cruel to most people. But in that instance, those people developed a heart of compassion and God moved within them. And so Ananias and Sapphira were just doing what the church was teaching. So on screen are some of the things that the early church was teaching these people. What led Ananias and Sapphira to sell their property in the first place. First of all, they were taught a sense of honesty and integrity. Now you know what honesty is. It not only means 
telling the truth when you speak. It means not withholding the truth when it needs to be heard. It means not deceptive actions, but allowing people to see truthfulness, to do what you say you're going to do. So for Ananias and Sapphira, the teaching was that when they gave that money, it was understood. They didn't have to say, it was understood. This would be the entire proceeds. That's what they said with their actions. Of course, the church had been taught better. And the people were terrified because this was a hard lesson. It makes sense when you think about it that people had to be taught how to be honest. Have you ever been around young kids, three, four, five years old? They're liars, aren't they? Did you do that? No. Look you right in the eye. Did you hit your sister? Uh-uh. Who did? I don't know. They're liars. We love them. We forgive them. They have to be taught, don't they? They have to be set in time out. Sometimes they need a swat on the rear or whatever is appropriate. But people have to be taught from early on that you tell the truth, that you don't lie, that you don't deceive, that you don't mislead. And it's a hard lesson. This is why people are liars today. When you watch somebody on TV telling a story and you know it's not true, they're just normal folk. People have to be taught. The early church was beginning that understanding of teaching people to be honest, to live with integrity. Integrity is the idea that you live by the words that you say you live by. So if you follow Jesus, if you say you're Christian, if you say you're going to honor Christ with your actions, then you honor Christ with your actions. No exceptions. Integrity is doing what you said you would do. Not a hard concept to understand. Hard to do. Generosity just means giving people what they need. Giving part of what you have away. Some would say, well, wait, it's mine. Yes, it is. It's yours. And it's yours so that you might help others. That's one of the reasons God gives us stuff. If you have more than you need, God wants you to share. Even if things are tight, God wants you to share and be generous to those who have less. Not because you're nice, that's part of it, but because that's what God wants you to do. God teaches us. I want you to give part of what you have away. In the Old Testament, they taught the tithe. You know that, 10%. The New Testament, Jesus affirmed the tithe and it said also, give according to need. So after you give a tithe, if there's a, still a need, you give more. If you've been given a lot more, you give a lot more. Give according to what you've been given. Given according to need. Given according to biblical teaching. Generosity means just sharing what you have with others. Again, it's one of those things that's easy to understand. Not so easy to do. One of the other things here that comes out in the story. In the early church, they were taught to be committed to the value of the fellowship. In other words, what you share with other Christians is the church. Remember, the church isn't the building. This is just where we meet. You are the church. If we had a shindig out at the park, the church would be there. This would still be a building, but the church would be where the people are. That's you. The New Testament peoples learned that this church thing, this fellowship of Christians, common believers all, was something to be valued. And you had to act like you valued it. So you had to act in a way that showed that you valued the church. 
Not the building just necessarily, but the people. So when you went to church and there were people in the fellowship who had need, you would value them. They would become part of the people of your concern and you would give or help or do whatever. For those others that didn't have anything to give, they were taught, you come here and we're going to help you. You can count on us. We are family. There was an article, it was a commentary in the Kansas City Star. It's been 15 or 20 years ago and I don't remember it. I clipped it and then lost it like preachers do. You know, one of the things that preachers do, we clip articles from everywhere and none of us file them very well. So we remember those articles but we can't prove it anything. But anyway, this story was in the Kansas City Star and a man was writing about the value of family. He said the thing about family is and he was lamenting the fact that we are losing the concept of family because people don't get married as much as they, do, they used to. He said, what happens is when you don't get married, people aren't family. They're in your circle. You eat with them. They raise your grandkids maybe and things like that. But, but we don't consider them a family. They're whatever. And we don't know what to do about that. And he said, the lament here is, and the problem is, when people aren't family, we tend not to care about them as much. So translate that understanding to church, fellowship, you value the fellowship. So one of those hard teachings was, and Peter and Paul and the others taught this over and over, that when you get together, you have to love and accept people. Interestingly enough, in the early church, the only place where slaves and slave owners and land owners and servants got together and were equals was the church. No one else did that. It just wasn't done. But the standard teaching, and this was a tough one, is that everybody accepts everybody. And the guy who comes in with money and the gal who walks in without anything, they are equal in every way in the sight of God. And that was a revolutionary teaching. Other cultures didn't do that. Other cultures taught about equal rights, but typically in other ancient cultures, when they talked about equal rights, it was equal rights among landowners or equal rights among nobility. But this idea of equal rights and equality for everybody just wasn't done. But the church was teaching that. Ananias and Sapphira said, you know, this is more important than we realized. We wanted to be a part of that. It was important to us. And I think they would confess that they just allowed their possessions to get a hold of them. Another thing here, you can see this on screen. Even though God is loving and forgiving, he holds us accountable for our sin. Chapter 5, if you would, still in Acts, chapter 5. I'll read verses 5 and then 9 through 11. Chapter, chapter 5, verse 5. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. Drop down to verse 9. Then Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they shall carry you out as well. And she fell immediately at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead. They carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. I remember a day, and some of you do, where preachers would talk about judgment and hell and punishment a lot. Right? 
a lot. I mean, most of the sermons I heard growing up were, they sounded like an angry preacher talking to people that had done something wrong. And he was an angry preacher, and most of us had done something wrong, so there was that accuracy there. But, you know, it's just some, kind of something we expected. But most of us don't want to hear that kind of stuff anymore. I hear comments like this all the time. I want to hear something positive. I want to hear something encouraging and uplifting. I want to feel better after I leave the church. And they'll say, well, Kevin, this is what I want. And that's a very subtle way of, let me tell you how you should preach. And preachers know this game, believe me. And it's a common game. I've heard it all my life. And so have you, on the other end probably. We want to hear things that are positive. No one wants to talk about judgment or hell or punishment because that's not positive. We don't like to think about it. And yet, here we are. Now to be sure, the gospel is a positive thing. Let's look at the positives that the gospel teaches. What was so positive in the early church? They had this message that said this. God loves everybody. Romans, Jews, Gentiles, rich, poor, pretty, ugly, fat, skinny, smart, stupid. Everybody was one of those people that God loved. And that was one of those hard teachings. No one ever heard that before. Are you sure? Remember Jonah ran out of town when God said, I love those people. He didn't want to hear it. No one wanted to hear that, and yet that was one of those positive messages that God loves everybody. Another one, everybody was created in the image of God. So all these people that are different, some intelligent, some not so, all the various strata in our culture, all these people are equal regardless of the labels. Because you know labels. Labels tend to separate us. If a person has this label, we can befriend them. If they have this label, we stay away. And so on and so forth. It's just the way people are. Nothing unusual about it. It's an evil thing, but we do it. The early Christians were saying, let's get rid of labels. Everybody, child of God. God offers children mercy and forgiveness. Everybody who wants to follow Jesus can. The message of Jesus, salvation, eternal life, all those things, is for everybody. Whether you like them or not is irrelevant. And then, when all these people get together in the fellowship, in church, you will love them. You will accept them. You will learn to appreciate them. Pretty steep curve for most people. But it was such a good thing and people liked it because, and this is hard to remember, only the wealthy people were loved and respected by all. Everybody else was at the bottom. And the crazy thing about people at the bottom, they know they're at the bottom. Don't they? Sure they do. It was an incredibly positive thing for the preacher to say, God loves you. God saves you. God cares for you. You see, the Bible is full of positive messages. So if you want to just hear the positive, there are all sorts of positive things that are true and biblical and Christian. And yet, this story teaches us that there's a negative side, kind of a downside to understanding who God is, a part of God that may not be much fun to talk about. Ananias and Sapphira were good folk, but they lied to God. And in that instance, God struck them dead. 
not a very positive message. There's a passage in Scripture. It's quoted three times in three different places. In Deuteronomy and in Psalms and in Hebrews. Hear this word. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Three times. The exact same phrase in different languages at different times in history came out. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. There is an aspect of faith where a little bit of fear needs to creep in. You don't have to live in terror of God zapping you or things like that. But God wanted people to understand, listen, this is not a game. This isn't just a, a feel-good thing where you get warm fuzzies and, and you go on about your business and do whatever you want. There is a life that God calls us to. And depending upon what it is you do, you may suffer the consequences if you resist God's instruction. On screen is this idea, follow along. God may act to punish sin more often though. He simply allows us to experience the natural consequences of our sinful behavior. What that means is, sometimes God may actually do something to punish someone. Per Ananias and Sapphira. We say, well, I don't think he does that anymore. Why not? Do you believe scripture? By the way, the scripture is the only thing you can count on. Hope you understood that. Well, this is the church age. This is what I've read. This is the church age where Jesus and his mercy is dominant. God doesn't do that anymore. Tell Ananias and Sapphira that. Followers of Jesus. There is a sense that sometimes, in certain instances, God may act to punish those who sin, Christian or not. I believe it. I don't necessarily go around trying to figure out what God's doing. When I see someone suffering, I don't necessarily jump to the conclusion, well, they're getting what they deserve. That's an evil thought. First of all, I don't know. Second, it's not my place. I don't know. But what we have to understand is that for us, when we look at our own lives, examine yourself when things happen. Doesn't mean beat yourself up, but it does mean be honest. Now, like I said on the screen, God doesn't necessarily have to do anything for you to suffer. Sometimes he allows you to suffer the consequences of your behaviors. Tammy and I stayed with our grandkids for several hours yesterday, which is always an experience because, number one, they wear you out. And number two, by the age of three, they test you. You know what I mean? They test you. They press you. They check to see how far they can go with you. And they say, are you going to tell mama? You see? So what we have to do is become more mature than our young grandchildren and grow up and take responsibility for our actions. What our grandkids often want is to escape the consequences of their behavior. I understand. I don't want to suffer for my bad, bad things. If I say something out of line, I don't want anybody to call me on it. If I drive too fast down the road, I don't want to meet a young gentleman in a blue, blue suit. I don't want to do that. You know, so on and so forth. I want to get away with stuff. And yet, being Christian sometimes means owning up to your behavior. If you sin, if you choose to ignore God's way, you may suffer the consequences Ananias and Sephra found that out the hard way. Now, we want to stop here for just a moment. This does not mean they lost their salvation. 
I've heard that preached. It's not true. It does not mean that they really weren't Christian in the first place. Sure they were. They were in the church. The pastor that baptized them thought they were Christian. As far as they knew, they were following Jesus. But there was sin within them in that struggle. And you know how that is, don't you? And so they chose to sin and suffer the consequences. The fact that you may experience the consequences of your sin doesn't mean you've lost your salvation. God still loves you. You are still forgiven in an eternal sense. When you die, you'll go and be with the Father. But the fact that you're a Christian doesn't mean you get to avoid all your problems and you can do whatever you want and escape the suffering of those consequences. There's this newspaper published in Ray County where we live and it's called the Town and Country Leader. It's just this, the old rag type thing that's that, that, that cheap paper and it's just a black and white. Sometimes they have a yellow label or something. And it's just full of nonsense and people selling junk and all this kind of thing. And there's a, a preacher there and he's affiliated with some church or something. And it, the title says, you are not a sinner. And he says, let me prove to you that you're not a sinner. And he has a whole bunch of stuff. He quotes some verses and things like that. And then he tells you his name and address and his phone number. Call me and I will show you why you're not a sinner. I almost want to talk to him just to see what in the world he's talking about. I follow Jesus. Go to church a lot. I'm still a sinner. Just like you. The fact that you suffer the consequences of sin in this life doesn't mean you're not Christian. In fact, John said if you are willing to confess and repent that God is faithful and just to cleanse us from our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So Ananias and Sapphira post-grave would say, we're with the Father now and we're good. Don't make the mistake, though, of rejecting God and his leadership. The call to faithfulness to God is a call to live with a sense of integrity and honesty. So let's choose, as a people, to live with faith. To follow the God who is God. To be the Christian that we tell God that we want to be. Let's allow Jesus to teach us. Let's follow the biblical example of Christians who stepped up and honored God and avoid the example of Christians who failed. We have to remind ourselves that this is a, an endeavor of faith. You don't go to church because you're nice or because you're good. You go to church because you follow the resurrected Jesus. You are Christian because you follow the resurrected Jesus. Jesus said at his last meal, when you get together, eat this meal when you take bread let it symbolize my flesh. When we drink, let it symbolize my blood. Thus you shall always proclaim your faith in me. So today we're going to do just that. I'm going to ask that the deacons who are going to help serve this meal would come to the Ford, come and get in their places. We invite you to join us as a celebration of faith, as invitation to faith. Pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your presence and life, for the opportunity to, to know the one true God and 
have life eternal. Use this meal to nurture us in our faith, to remind us of who we are, to call us to faithfulness each day. We love you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Paul tells the story. It was revealed to him because he wasn't there at the last meal. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He continues, In the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then Paul explains, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So this meal was intended not just to remind you that we follow the resurrected Christ, but to proclaim to others that the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus is why we gather. It's what makes us the church. We're not better than anybody else, but we are different because we follow the crucified and resurrected Jesus. And that's who we are. Nate's going to come and lead us in a closing hymn of invitation and commitment. There's a decision you need to make. You need a word of prayer or something like it. You can come forward during the song or you can meet with me out in the hall afterwards. This Christian faith is something between you and God of others. Would you stand with me, please? Nate? Come on over here. Mike and his wife had a pretty big deal going on this week. 50 years together. Can you imagine that? Round of applause, please. Probably the applause goes for your wife and more than just you. <laughs> Gas was 36 cents a gallon when I got married. Was it? Oh. <laughs> Been a long time. Long time. Let's say a word of prayer. Father, be with us now as we go, and keep and protect us from harm. And just be with us, and have us, help us have a safe and good week. And Father, help us this week to do a good deed for someone else, and help us to do it in your Son Jesus' name. Amen.